0: Hello, everyone. This is Shannon Waller here, and I am very thrilled today because today we're going to have a conversation with with an author that I have a huge amount of respect for. And as a lot of you know, in my Team Success Handbook, I have done a recommended reading list, and Lewis's book is actually at the very top of the list for several reasons. It's one of the newest books I've read, but it's also one of the books that has had the biggest impact on my thinking personally, and it certainly is incredibly relevant for everyone I talk to and everyone I work with. So, Lewis, thank Thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thanks, Shannon, for having me. It's wonderful to be back at Strategic Coach.
0: That's awesome. So for those of you that don't know, Lewis Schiff is a New York Times bestselling author. He is associated with Inc. Magazine, very successful uh, contributor to that, and he'll tell you about some of his business ventures with Inc. in just a moment. Uh, and also a lot of what he's done is based on research into what makes entrepreneurs successful, which is clearly an incredibly relevant topic for us. And so the, one of the, f- the first book I read by you, Lewis, was actually The Middle Class Millionaire, which I found incredibly exciting because it really kind of laid open the backstage secrets of what – how millionaire middle class millionaires thought and how they behaved. And I thought that was very educational. And I recommend clients saying, if you want to learn about yourself, read this book. Right. It was so – Illustrative. I loved it. And then Business Brilliant, to my mind, takes that a whole gigantic leap forward because it really lays out the principles and the action steps that other people can do to become not only millionaires, but high net worth millionaires and, in fact, super millionaires. So uh, we're going to get into what those principles are in a moment. So are there any other credentials or history that our audience should know about before we jump into the business brilliant principles?
1: Well, the, f- uh, the first, I'll go back a little bit. I, I grew up in New York City and uh, I had to get a job after school. I got the usual jobs, but then I wanted to get a better job. And I ended up, uh, because I lived in Manhattan, I ended up walking into a magazine company and I you know, got my first kind of semi-adult job. And I've more or less stayed in magazines and media ever since. Um so it's not like a, I chose the profession it kind of chose me but um uh so I spent time in a lot of magazines then I went towards personal finance magazines because I found the game of money to be very interesting. And then I started a website that I sold to a company that went public. So I had a really good kind of Silicon Alley 1990s, you know, that great experience that everyone like dreams about. I had I had some of that. Worked with incredible companies like Kleiner Perkins, the big VC firm, and Charles Schwab and Intuit and uh, just great companies. And um, out of that came the first book I wrote called Armchair Millionaire. So I've written three books, and the reason I tell the story is that um, of these three books, Armchair Millionaire, Middle Class Millionaire, and now Business Brilliant, is because they pretty much track my own interests. So um, I think the myth a lot of people have is that you sell a book to a publisher because you're an expert in the topic. I have managed three times in a row now to sell books to publishers on topics that I know nothing about, but (laughs) I want to know a lot more about, and so I use the books to learn. And so as I come to the third book, as you said, how to do it, You know, Business Brilliant is how you do it. That's where I was at. I had studied them. I had gotten to know them. And for myself, it was time for me to learn how to do it. And that's the book.
0: Oh, I love it. So it's your own personal success formula as well. Fantastic. All right. So there's a whole, there's so much to talk about. We're only going to be able to go in depth with a few of them. But there are some really key elements to the book and why it works. And one of the things I really appreciate about Business Brilliant is it is research and fact based. Information that I think supports a ton of strategic coach principles. And you actually highlight Dan and some clients in the book, which I found very validating, and I appreciate that very much. And uh, so talk a little bit about how the research happened, your partner, Russell and Prince, and, and the, just a little bit about the context for how you learned what the, those business brilliant principles
1: are. Sure. Well, first of all, there's a lot of wonderful well, – I'm not going to dwell too much on books because books are one way to get information. There's other ways. But there are a lot of great books, written by great people who've done great things. Uh, and I respect those books. What I, I haven't done as many of those great things. I, and not even that. I can't come at it that way in terms of telling my story. I am a fact finder, um, and I have a lot of questions. And when I have questions, I need answers before I can move forward. So for me, a, an evidence-based book, one that's based on data, is more valid to a person like me then a book about a very successful person who's telling me how they did it, even though that's very valid for some people. So this is a book that starts off with a survey of 800 households, 400 households that are what I define in the book as middle-class households, uh, and 400 households that are self-made millionaires, meaning they, they're middle-class millionaires. They came from the middle class, and they achieved what's very, very difficult to do. They've acquired, accumulated a level of wealth that most of us will never know. And, um, it's, it, in some ways, it couldn't be simpler. The same question is asked of both. How are you going about creating more wealth? And that's an important question for middle class people, and it's an important question for self made millionaires. What's really interesting is their answers. And so we, we, there's parts where they answered the question the same way, and then there were parts where they answered the question differently. And we focused on the places where they answered the question differently. Because it comes down to this if two groups of people want the same thing, they're going about it differently. One has done it and the other one hasn't. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that exploring that gap... Is where the answers lie. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So, talk about your partnership a little bit with Russ and, and his background and how what he adds to your knowledge base and complements your talents because I think that's an interesting story too.
1: So, Russ is a brilliant, brilliant guy. He you know he's cloistered himself in a, in a compound in Connecticut, won't come out for anybody. But I was fortunate enough to get to know him before he closed the doors on his uh, on his you know compound. So I, I now get to go in. <laughs> he is a person who is from Canarsie, Brooklyn, and I'm from you know Manhattan, Queens. So we're, we're sort of kindred spirits. And he is a person who, um, like me, has a great fascination with how money is made and how money is um, put together. And he, he looks at it differently than I do. He cares about how really, really, really wealthy people did it. I care about how middle class people did Did better than the middle class? It's sort of a similar question, but it's not the same. So when I proposed to him the idea of working on this book called Middle Class Millionaire, this is a book ago, he said, you know, that crowd of $1 to $10 million, that's that's like the low end of money. Um, But I convinced him to do it. But where his real strengths lie are people who have gone on to be what they call centimillionaires, hundreds of millions of dollars, and billionaires. And he probably is a social scientist who has probably spent more time talking to billionaires than almost anyone on the planet. Maybe nobody else on the planet has researched that group with one-on-one interviews as much as he has. He has since gone on to become a coach to these people because that's what you do. You research people. You, you learn a lot by talking to 100 people. And though the 101st person comes along and you actually have a lot of knowledge to bring them. So that's what he does now. So he is a coach to the very, very wealthy Just like a coach to a great athlete is trying to get incremental improvements, he's trying to get incremental improvements to the lives of these wealthy folks in terms of their pursuit of money. So maybe they're great at making money, and he makes them just a bit better. Mm -hmm. And in that crowd, just a bit better could be a billion dollars better, $10 billion better. Um, So he and I can sit and have a cheeseburger, and he tells me literally the secrets of the rich. I mean, you can't... For me, as a journalist and as a storyteller, you, you can't ignore that. You can't say, oh, that's interesting, Russ. I'm not going to do anything about it. <laughs> you <laughs> have to do something with it.
0: Exactly. <laughs> and so out of that, you guys, you surveyed how many how many different families or households did you survey? For Business
1: Brilliant, 800 people. Great. Uh, representing 800 households. 400 of them self-made millionaires and 400 of them. Middle-class people with a net worth of less than a million.
0: Got it. Okay, perfect. So let's extract some of those learnings and those lessons because I think that's what everyone wants to get into. So I have my copy of the book here. So if you hear paper shuffling, that's exactly what it is. So the first one is do what you love but follow the money or and follow the money. So and one of the principles that you talk about a lot is really – and I want to draw out a little bit more – is – how what people focus on in terms of the most successful people? What do they you know? Do they try and do everything? or are they just specialize? And then the whole follow the money thing, I think, is in a very astute point because you make this point in the book. You know, another book that came out long, long time ago that said, "Do what you love, money will follow." Right. And you you've changed that a little bit. So right. let's let's dive into that one.
1: So this in- introduces a few concepts. The first is. Do what you love and the money will follow is a universally accepted idea amongst the middle class. And it falls under the category of magical thinking, meaning if you do what you love, this this other force in the universe will find you and help you. Um, When you ask very successful self-made people whether do what you love and the money will follow, they reject it outright. So right here we just ask ourselves, okay, I, I have a preconceived notion and I hold on to it because it's in my heart. But I'm hearing from a lot of successful people that they don't agree with me. What do I do about that? So the whole chapter, that whole principle is about um, story after story where very successful people were willing to do things that took them farther and farther away from something they thought they should be doing and closer and closer to things that made them money. And in the process, they learned what they were especially good at. And they, and then ultimately, as the book goes on, they learn how to build teams of people around them who are especially good at the things they're not good at. So they're shedding the things they're not good at, and they're focusing on what they are good at. What's interesting about it is the people around them, who start out with them, can't can't go there with them because they're too fixated on the original idea. So mm-hmm. we have a story about Gila Liberté, the founder of Cirque du Soleil, and he presents himself as a, as the billionaire clown, as a lovable clown who made it big. The truth of the matter is, as he was building in. Uh, Quebec, and Montreal, he was building this circus troupe. There's nothing that could have... that He could have easily have become a very popular, not-for-profit, government-funded, artistic troupe of great circus acts. He was the one who said, I don't want to do that. I want to go for profit. The artists that had come up with him all walked away. They did not want to go there with him. He was following the money. They didn't want to be part of it. Now today... Cirque du Soleil does more revenue than all of Broadway combined. Wow! It is a global enterprise. It simply never would have had the impact it it has if it had remained as a not-for-profit. It doesn't mean they couldn't have done beautiful work and it had an impact on their community, but they would never have accomplished what they did. The real question is when those people walked away from it, not one of them said, I'll stay if you give me 1% of this new company. Because if they did, that 1% would be worth in the many, many millions of dollars today. Wow. So why does one guy do what he loves but insist on following the money and so many other people who are doing what they love not see where the money is leading them
0: It's interesting because it seems like people think you can either have one or the other but what I all the examples in your book are people who actually end up doing both right so I like it's kind of do what you love and follow the money and that's really going to be the path to success so I but you have that.
1: to be tuned into it you have to be focused on how doing what you love, And making money from it is actually a very positive activity. Some people get um, concerned about that. The person who loves to cook and then opens a restaurant one day and then they decide they hate the restaurant business. Now they don't even want to go in a kitchen. Well, That's a person who isn't capable of doing what they love and the money will follow or following the money because they're confused about that process. It goes much deeper into this thing that I'm very passionate about called self-determination theory, which I won't go into. But the bottom line is um, if you understand – how rewards and doing things that you care about work together, you can have a lot more of a successful experience.
0: I could not agree more. You asked a question in our previous conversation, which I thought was actually an extraordinary question. And it is, do you know what you're exceptionally good at that makes you money? And that's, I think, where you've really pulled those two things together. And I thought that's that's a pretty profound question because it's not just what are you exceptionally good at because that's challenging for a lot of people to figure out because right. either the ego gets in the way and they like, oh, it's not okay to be that much better than other people, or I'm, I'm kind of average. All those mental conversations happen. But then you add the caveat, and that makes you money, which means it's what creates value in the world. Right. What are other people willing to pay you for? Right. And that actually goes back to your previous point about you – Got other people to pay you to write books, so you can learn what you want to know about. Which is that's one of very my very astute. Actually. That is one
1: of my, uh, but that is one of my skills. Yes. Is um, almost every. I, I don't know why this is important, except it has become important to me. Um, most people pay tuition to learn things, and I. Get people to pay me to learn things.
0: Well, and that's something that Dan's always talked about: is you know, do your unique ability, and have other people pay for the development of your unique ability. Yeah. So you get better by doing it. The other thing I find that just to go back to your self determination theory, I think, is that when people are paying you, it it makes you up your game. You ha- you have to figure out it it fine to at least is my experience with my own coaching is that I am intimate. I have to be intimately paying attention to exactly what's working for people, what's not. I have to be super aware. I have to be so conscious because if it doesn't, it, I'm not going to be creating value when they're not going to pay me. So part of it is not only what, it's not just about me, it's about what's making an impact on other people. So that connecting it with the world, I think is an incredibly important dynamic that, as you say, has not really been talked about. It's that magical thinking that gets in the way.
1: I couldn't agree with you more except to say that it's easy to say it like you just did when you understand it. Mm. But a lot of people <laughs> don't understand it and so it actually creates a great amount of internal conflict. Right. So they're they want to do what they love and the idea of making money at it is just a conflicting kind of a thought. So you, you know you've I don't I actually don't have a lot of prescriptions in the book around this other than to say you've got to learn how to figure out how to bring these two things together. Yeah. And if you keep doing what you love and it doesn't, you know, but you can't figure out how to monetize it, well, then that's a hobby. You know, it's a, it could be fine. Um, but the great the greats, you know, put the two together.
0: Mm, I think that's a powerful piece of wisdom. I mean, if we just look at human success and, and what works, what you're saying is what works. So I think it's up to us to align our thinking with what works for human beings as yep. opposed to any other kind of thinking we might indulge in.
1: I also think as an employer, this is a huge issue because if you've got 10 or 100 people working for you um, and if they are in the right job – and they're being paid for it. You have to know that um, there's some risk that they're unhappy, even though you've done everything you think you should do. I'm, I worked hard to craft a really good job description. I found the right person. I've trained them. I've supported them. Why are they still unhappy? And it might have to do with the fact that they are not comfortable with the idea that they're being rewarded for what they're good at. And that's a whole other level of work you can either sign up for as an employer or not. But if you don't know why it's not gelling, it could be the self-determination theory kind of thinking.
0: It's interesting because, I mean, a huge part of what I do and I focus on and what my Team Success Handbook is about is how to have an entrepreneurial attitude, which is really, I think, lining up what you love to do with what creates value. Um, and also creating a unique ability team. So it's actually about attracting people who don't have an issue with that formula and who really want to get, you know, rewarded and and enjoy doing what they love to do that creates value. And they have no problem with that equation whatsoever. So I think a lot of it is creating an environment where you attract those people. Right. People can do their own self-personal development kind of on the side, but it really, I think it's about creating an environment where it's totally cool, kosher, appropriate, rewarded, exciting, happy, positive place to be where people can create enormous value and, and benefit from it.
1: I think that's absolutely right.
0: Yeah, that's that's been my mission. Okay, I love that. Thank you. So um, on that note, actually, let's talk about, in our, again, in our previous conversation, you talked about the line of money, which I thought was, again incredibly fascinating. So can you outline that for our audience and just talk about what is the line of money and where people fall on that? So to tie in both entrepreneurs and their teams, how does that work? And how can people move up the line, especially if not everyone's going to be an entrepreneur? Because some of the people listening are not entrepreneurs and they're entrepreneurial team members. Right. So how can that work for them? So that's a big question. So,
1: I'm sure you have your definition of this, but I'll just give you mine, uh, which has to do with What does it mean when we say entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. So these days, a lot of people think entrepreneur means you're you're sort of unorthodox in the way you go about doing your job. I I, I have no problem with that definition. I I get it. So I think you've got people who work at a company and they think of themselves or call themselves entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. because they are just clever and crafty and they work the organizational chart to their best interests and they focus on what's important. And I think companies need more of these people and should encourage it. Versus this person who we call the entrepreneur who owns the business. I I think a a ton of people do not want to be that entrepreneur because that is a level of commitment that they're just not interested in.
0: And risk. And Mm -hmm. risk.
1: So we respect that, and there's many ways to live your life. And the ones that you're talking about are the ones who are entrepreneurial and who are willing to sort of behave like entrepreneurs, but they don't want to actually be the entrepreneur. There are a lot of ways they can participate in the success of their company beyond just being an hourly worker or a salaried worker, which I think – is a reasonable next step for that entrepreneurial person. So that entrepreneurial person needs to figure a few things out about themselves. One is, do they want to be a genuine entrepreneur in their own company, or do they want to be a gifted entrepreneurial team member? And they're both valuable, and you can, you know, if it comes to money, I mean, you can make a lot of money doing either. Uh, The line of money that I write about is this idea that the lowest rung on the line of money is when you just make a salary because whether you do a good job or you don't do a good job, you're paid the same amount of money. So it's, even if you're delivering value to the company, you don't see it back in your salary. The And that's where a lot of people are and they say, well, it's either that or I start my own company. And that seems to be this binary, but it's not true. There's a second level which I call project pricing, which is when you take in a piece of money, let's say $100 to get a job done, and then you outsource it to other people around you who will do it for less than you would do it. And you keep the difference. So pay seven, se- pay three people $75 to get the job done. You get to keep $25. That $25 is money you made without doing the thing itself. Okay? So huge difference between being the player who does it to being the person who coordinates three people who do it. And you keep the difference.
0: That's profit.
1: Profit. Now, there's risk in that. So you have entered into the world of risk, but it's not quite the same risk as being a full-on entrepreneur. The third way is percentage pricing, where you can you could do this with your employer. You could say... And you could do that last one with your employer. You could say to your employer, this project is going to cost $50,000. If I can get it done for $40,000, I'd like a $1,000 bonus. You can do things like that. Um, the, the, the percentage pricing one is where you get paid a percentage of the success. So if the thing that you're doing generates $50,000 in revenue, you could make a case for why you should be entitled to 2% of it. You can get a percentage of the price. You can also, in that same conversation, make the case that if it doesn't do what we all think it's going to do, you'll get paid less. So you're essentially taking on a little bit of the risk that the employer has. So those are three Two things, really, you can do that are better than just being a player, a pay-by-the-hour player. The last one is the one that we all talk about, which is being the proprietor, being the owner. And um, you know, I understand that that's not right for some people, and so that's fine. Just in your workplace, try to re-engineer your relationship with your employer where you move one rung up the line of money from being an hourly to being a project-oriented compensation program. uh, project-oriented compensation, move up to percentage-based compensation program. I think if you work for an employer who doesn't want – there's a whole other part to this, by the way, is your job description and having a chance to rewrite your job description with your employer. But if you have an employer who doesn't want to talk to you about this, you can still be an employee – but just work for somebody else who's open to that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a decision that many of us should be making. Right. Okay. Big, safe company that doesn't want to hear about your own personal development in that way versus the smaller company, where I guess there is maybe arguably some more risk because they're not as big, but they will tolerate and even welcome much more creative compensation programs that allow you to be entrepreneurial.
0: Well, that's actually my next question. So for a business owner – so a strategic coach client, for example, you know, if they're looking at how do they build their team, I mean, because I I work with team members, entrepreneurs all the time. It's like, how do I get my team to be more entrepreneurial? Which is partly why I wrote the book. It's based on having an entrepreneurial attitude. So, so how can they? Sounds like they can structure compensation systems. They can they can actually create project pricing and percentage based payment for things to help encourage that kind of thinking with their with their team members.
1: Well, I you know, so this is so funny that we're talking about this. <laughs> Well, it's doable and uh, I was – I just presented something the other day in front of a bunch of employers where I suggested that um, if they did that, if they empowered their employees – everyone who goes around, I want to empower my employees and they're all going to be leaders. They'll think like owners. But the truth is, I kind of painted a scenario. What if you actually were successful? What if all 100 people who work for you didn't care about your organizational chart? You know, they were willing to steal other ideas from other departments because it helped them get the job done. If they want to talk to your client about how to do something better, they would just call the client and ask. They wouldn't wait for you to introduce them. I mean, it would be chaos. And reasonably so, they would all come to you and say, hey, I'm doing these six different things that no one ever told me to do, but I'm just doing them anyway, which is how entrepreneurs act. And if they're successful, you better pay me for it. It would be a form of chaos. I do think that, um, and a lot of companies do this, I think you have to identify people in your company that you are prepared to empower. Okay. And when you empower them, meaning when you, you think these five people or these 10 people would really serve my company well if they thought and behaved entrepreneurially, then be prepared. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying be prepared. A, be prepared for them to ask for a piece of the action. In a lot of different ways. One, one's, one's equity, but there's the other, like project pricing and percentage. B. Expect them to ignore the org chart. They're not going to play by the same rules, just like you don't play by those rules. C. You know, um, expect them to steal ideas from other departments if they're good ideas or are outside the company and want to bring them in. You know, they want to change things and procedures. We call it borrowing. Borrowing, create, <laughs> liberating. And these are all ways that entrepreneurs act. So just don't be surprised when you empower people to be entrepreneurial that they actually act like entrepreneurs.
0: (laughs) Well, and and some of the very best entrepreneurs that I know of, which actually includes Dana Babs, are very open and welcoming to new ideas. It's not seen as stealing. It's seen as sharing and collaborating. And it actually makes your description of the company, you know, of of that organization, the chaos, actually sounds like strategic coach (laughs) in 1991 when I joined. (laughs) It was very much like, okay let's just try stuff, and it worked, thank goodness um, so so what you said I know can be actually true and, and works uh, as long as there is that mindset and I think what's interesting if I think about the st- growth of strategic coach and Dana Babs is that they they were so clear from the outset I mean, about what they were exceptionally good at that created value, and that was you know very small, very few number of activities right, and then they kept Bab's particular kept looking at okay. What else? Who else do we need? Who's got a great talent? Who's got the right mindset? Who's got the right attitude and brought them on board to keep liberating Dan from things he could not, should not, or was not doing? You know that needed to get done. So I think you know what you've just described is the evolution of strategic coach, which is kind of fun,
1: and and hopefully more companies like it. You know because these are um, models that. I mean, there's a company – I'm interesting to talk about strategic coach because you get to a size where, you know, you may not even have some of those qualities you used to have. Even a company of strategic coach is not as nimble as it was 10 years ago. And it's – so companies get big. They do get a little more structure. They have to. And in the course of being structured, they do give up some entrepreneurial qualities. But – as we all know, we've all read the books about creative destruction and, and Schumpeter and all this stuff. You know, you have to continue a part of the company that's reinventing for the future. It has to go on. Otherwise, you know, there's, we already know the ending of this story.
0: Yeah, Dr. Barry Johnson would call out a polarity to manage as opposed to a problem to solve. So, yes, there's a great book called Polarity Management, which would help solve that problem, <laughs> deal with the issue. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is the chapter, and this actually, you started in one chapter, but it really follows through the theme of the book, and that is negotiation. I was powerfully impacted by what your research showed in terms of how people go into negotiations, how people responded, the university study was, so can you just, outline that a little bit for somebody who hasn't read the book yet and then we can talk about the impact because that was, that was incredibly powerful. Well, there's
1: a few parts to this whole idea of negotiation which includes just asking, right? I'll wrap the two together. So um, asking and negotiating are things that, let's face it, successful self-made millionaires are just better at and it's probably innate because the same books are available in the same bookstores for all the groups. Uh, they all say the same thing. So it's just one group is better at adopting the techniques than the others. But... Starting with asking, if I can start there, Um, self-made millionaires like to ask. They like to ask for stuff. And the second part, and super important second part, is they are okay when they only get a piece of what they ask for. Most people are uncomfortable asking. But if they ask, if they don't get everything they ask for, they feel like they failed. Just sit with that for a moment because that's a big difference. Ask for a 5% raise, you get a 3% raise middle-class millionaires say that's good. Ask for a 5% raise, get a 3% raise. Middle-class people feel like they failed. Just have to shift your thinking about that because when you ask for the 5% raise and you get the 3% raise, you didn't fail. You succeeded. You got more than you had before. And if there was a failure, maybe you didn't make your case well enough. Maybe your you found out your boss doesn't think as much of you as you think of yourself. Well, you have a, a roadmap now for where to go. So you can do something with that information. Um, the bigger part of negotiation that I find fascinating is there's all these techniques that are used for the population at large to get them to lose in negotiations. And most of us walk around all day long not realizing that they're happening to us. When you go to the car dealership and they have you fill out the form by hand that you're going to you know, put in your address and put in all this information, what they're doing is they're just making you do actual work towards the purchase of that car so that when they come back later and they say – it's gonna you know, plus we have the extra thousand dollar, you know, maintenance package we have to charge you for. You're like, I've already done all this paperwork, so okay, screw it, let's just do it. I mean it's all very calculated. But there is this group, these self-made millionaires, who will say, No, you just went over my line. I was not willing to spend that extra thousand. I am willing to walk away from this deal entirely. Not as a threat, they actually are willing to walk away. So middle class millionaires, self-made millionaires are prepared to walk away from a deal when it doesn't when it kind of violates their minimum, you know, willingness to go forward with it. And most middle-class people are not. This comes up very apparently when you're looking at a home you know, shopping to buy a home or even rent a home. You have to, at some level, fall in love with it. You have to imagine you, maybe your family, growing up in this place. At the same time, you've got to pay the price you've got to pay. And so when the negotiations go on and it's an extra $10,000, you know, most people are counting on the fact that you already imagine your home living there, so you're going to you're gonna make an unwise decision. Middle-class millionaires can walk away. They can walk away from these deals. What this does is, in the chapter's called uh, Win-Win is for Losers, What this does is it confronts the whole idea uh, that we've all been taught, which is that win-win is the best way to approach negotiations. It's not that it's a bad thing in and of itself. It's that if you don't have both parties agreeing to play the win-win game, then you, as the win-winner, will lose.
0: (laughs) Which is amazing.
1: And middle-class millionaires, here's how they feel about it. They don't care if you win. They don't want you to win. They don't want you to lose. They just don't care. And so if you're a win-winner and they're a, I don't care, but I have to win, you're negotiating with, you know, you're not negotiating on an even playing field.
0: That's fascinating. And and I there's an example that you tell in the story, of, uh, a story in the book, where you talk about someone who had to come in for coaching because they'd lost... A big deal, because they'd given away too much, which I thought was really illustrative. they They were playing on such a win-win playing field that someone actually stopped trusting them, right. which I thought was kind of wild, but I can after I looked at it, it was like, oh, okay, I can see that. Can you, you'll tell the story better than I would.
1: Well, just that the that when you go in with a an overly conscious approach to win-win, um meaning you're thinking on behalf of your counterparty too much. Um, that can send to – a, to a person who's more like bent or more wired like a middle-class millionaire, that can come across as desperation.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so in this case, in that story, it came across as this person is, make, is offering me too much and being too helpful to me to get this deal done. They must be desperate. This company must be on its last legs. If I sign this deal, I bet they go out of business. And so he had the abs- absolutely opposite effect of what he was trying to accomplish. And so, yeah, ask ourselves when we're when we're being win winners, um, you know, what ne- what destructive work are we doing, and and what systems are already in place to make win win lose even from the outset. So, you know, if any of your listeners are familiar with supply chain management, that's code word for I win, you lose. <laughs> supply chain management means get stuff for less. So, you have a supply chain management process in parallel with a win-win negotiation, it means you're going to lose, mm-hmm. right? So there's, these things are in, really deep in conflict, but the approach of the middle-class millionaire seems to be, uh, while it sounds a little negative, it seems to be um, mo- the most functional, which is just worry about yourself. Don't worry about the other person.
0: Right. So self-interest is going to enlighten. Self-interest is going to get where you, where you want to go. <laughs> enlightened
1: self-interest is wow. I mean, it is so present in self-made millionaires. And so, And I spend a lot of time with them and, you know, they start to pepper you with questions. If you're, you know, you're around successful people and they ask you, they pepper you with these very specific questions and what they're plumbing for, it's like they're sticking a fork in the ground looking for water. They're saying, where's the opportunity for me? Where's the opportunity for me? What can this person do for me? Why should I waste my time? Why shouldn't I waste my time? And they're not chatting with you. They're not asking you where you want a vacation. They're trying to figure out what kind of person are you? Who do you spend time with? What kind of car do you drive? I mean, they're just, they're profiling you.
0: Well, and and to my mind in those conversations, they're very intentional. And I actually kind of like it because it gives me a ton of freedom to be very intentional back because I'm also looking for opportunity. And then I realize when I switch gears and get into other more social situations, I have to switch off because otherwise it's not appropriate (laughs) in those environments to do that. So anyway, I found the whole win, 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 lose. And and the other thing, my conclusion after reading that chapter was that I have left a lot of money on the table over the years. So can you talk about that and –
1: Right. So, and what
0: that means.
1: Well, so uh, in one part of the book we explore, um, so there's something called the gender gap. And of course, as we know, you're a woman.
0: <laughs> How people can tell that, yes.
1: <laughs> and um, so there's this thing called the gender gap. And, and people who are passionate about this topic for years have been saying women get paid less for the same work as a man. And uh, without me disputing too much of that, because I'm sure there's truth to it, there's also something called the asking gap, which we discovered.
0: Can I jump into that? Because one of the things that I thought was fen- phenomenal in the book was it points out it's not just the fault. In fact, it's not really the fault of the of the person who's paying that person less. It's the person themselves, male or female, who didn't ask. Right. And when they did ask, they asked for less.
1: And they asked for yeah right. So right. So this can be men or women. Of course, men don't ask for raises or ask for more money when they're in a deal, and women don't. I mean, it's it's not just universally gender based. In fact. I would say um, gender matters less to self-made millionaires, meaning women who are self-made millionaires act like men who are self-made millionaires. They don't act like women who are not self-made millionaires. So, um, yeah, so we've left a lot of money on the table in this sense. Pretty much every negotiation you have starts off with the fact that if there's a sense of the market price, let's say you're going for a job and the job pays $50,000, there's a sense of the market price. And so you're offered an amount of money. And that the fact that they've offered to you first is your big advantage because we they've polled HR people all over the country over and over again. They never offer you the top dollar figure because it doesn't make sense because they need to leave themselves a little bit of room to close the deal. So forget generosity. It just wouldn't make sense. They offer you 50. We can talk about what, what they really have. But you know, let's say it's 55 and there's research about where they're willing to go to. But – Overwhelmingly people and much more women than men, but overwhelmingly people fail to ask for more money. They just accept the first amount. Why do they do that? They do it because to ask for more will make them look greedy. They're afraid that it'll screw up the deal. And so they have all these negative emotions going on. To ask for more, if you're offered fifty to say like fifty-five, and they say, well, no, fifty-two, you feel like you lost. So it's it's that is that's lose lose, right? You're experiencing it as a lose-lose. The reality is, and self-made millionaires seem to exhibit this more, you have to ask for 55 in order to get to 53, or ask for 60 and you'll get to 55. In other words, the example after example, and this is anecdotal, of just asking for a lot more money than you should have asked for, because it's going to come back some, but if you ask for way too much money, it'll come back more than it would have otherwise.
0: This is something that Dan's talked about in the workshop numerous times. He said it was – people say, well, how much should I charge? And he said, take what you think, double it, and add 20%. (laughs) And they're like – and then they do it, and the person says, okay. And they're like, I should have asked for more. Right. So there's a huge amount of truth to that. And, yeah. and what I like is that entrepreneur. My, my experience with our clients, a lot of them are scared and they do it anyway. Right. So they don't let the fear hold them back, right. which I think is what the most of the middle class thinking does let right. it stop them.
1: And that goes to another chapter in the book. But the, the failure. So let's say you do ask for more and let's say you just don't get anything. Let's say the worst case scenario happens. It screws up the deal. You, you killed it that is a failure to be learned from. Mm -hmm. Whereas most people would regard that as a failure of their own doing and would feel horrible shame about it and and wouldn't know how to make it into something constructive.
0: Well, that's actually the next topic I want to get into, which is the whole failure. And your chapter title number eight is Nothing Succeeds Like Failure, which I love every second of. Because the tool for that in coach, for those of you that are in coach, is the Experience Transformer. It takes a situation that you know, could have worked well, but could have worked better or was a train wreck and you need to learn from it quickly and gets you out of the taking it personally phase and into how can I be creative instead of reactive about the solution? So... But but middle-class millionaires and above have a very, very different attitude towards failure. And you've alluded to that a little bit already. So let's talk about that some more. What's, what's the difference in the attitude?
1: So, you know, we live in an interesting time where the idea of starting up something is kind of a universally accepted idea, right? I mean, I don't know if people 50 years ago said, let's get together at a coffee shop and I have this idea for something and we can draw it on a napkin and maybe we can do it.
0: And start Southwest Airlines.
1: <laughs> There's a lot of great stories. That, so starting up is something we're all pretty good at now. Starting up ideas, starting things up. And actually, the laws and technology have also enabled this enormously. What most of us are not good at is persevering through the inevitable friction that will come from after our startup. So you start with your own ideas. You're negotiating, convincing yourself it's the best thing. You put it in the marketplace, and the marketplace finally tells you, it's too expensive. It doesn't solve my problem. It takes too long, whatever it is. And now you have to respond. That point is when perseverance starts to matter. Because if you perceive the response from the marketplace as a rejection that, oh, it's too expensive, oh, well, I guess it doesn't work. It takes too long, well, I can't, I can't get it done any faster. Whatever your response is, if you walk away, then you've done what most people do, which is you've perfected how to start, and that's all you've done. <laughs> and there's a few people who have, who are – I don't want to say perfected, but who have that internal fortitude to keep going and try to solve those problems. It turns out those are the people who end up with the money.
0: Well, it sounds like the attitude is always one of experimentation, versus you know try. It's, I've already thought this through, and it has to work only this way. And you know, another thing we say is progress, not perfection. So they're they're always working on the next possible step, not expecting it to be perfect, not expecting it to work a hundred percent. Is is the middle class millionaire way of thinking?
1: Right. And you mentioned earlier how um, you know even your clients are afraid to ask sometimes, even though they're seasoned entrepreneurs or they're seasoned entrepreneurial team members. That's absolutely true. The, I think a mistake gets made. People look at – I wrote about David Nealman from JetBlue Airlines who's sort of well-known but he's in some ways well known as well-known for his failures as he is for his successes. I think people know people like David Nealman, smaller versions of it, and they say, well, that guy is just wired differently than me. You know, He just can do things I can't do. I could never handle or absorb that kind of pressure. And I would say that, um, that you know all the different levels of failure that can exist – I don't think, and I've spent a lot of time with people who are successful who have failed. I have seen what happens to them. You know, all the, the worst things happen to them. I mean, they, they disappear, they, they, they drink, they, you know, they have to, like, they get fat. I mean, all sorts of things happen. And what the only the only difference is that after a while, they pick themselves up and they start again because they simply cannot abide by the idea that they didn't figure it out. So they feel it just as much as we feel it. It's just... The prospect of giving up is just too hard for them to handle.
0: Yeah. It's not an option. Giving up is not an option for But they feel it.
1: They, they feel the same pain. They feel the same rejection. It's just that their response to it is different.
0: I love it. That's awesome. Now, you have a formula that you have taken that distills down all of this into something that's very memorable. So can you talk about LEAP and sure. how that works?
1: So the formula is, uh, it's the last chapter of the book, and it's an important one because uh, for I've, I've received a lot of great emails and things about, you know, this is such a great social media world, everyone can tell you what they think now. And so you hear a lot. And when you write a book, you write a linear thing, it's got page one through page 200. And you're just you hope that people read it that way. But that's not necessarily how they read it. Um, But the chapter we've been talking about nothing succeeds like failure is sort of the culmination of the prior chapter saying, even if you do everything right, it still might fail. So you have to be ready to keep pushing. Then we've gone through what the middle class and the self made millionaires, do differently. And now we're left with you, the reader. And what are you going to do about it is the big question.
0: Well, and this is one of the things I love about your book and why it's on my list is because you not only lay out what other people have done, but you actually lay out an action process and something that people can do. So I really appreciate that you put that in the book.
1: Well, thanks. I think it's important to introduce people and inspire people, but it's unsatisfying if you don't also help them actually implement it. So this is um, right out of kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's really about thinking differently, really changing the way you think. And so there's... um, Seventeen—it sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. Seventeen exercises, but each one takes ten or twenty minutes, and you can try to do them over and over again because you're not going to get it right the first time. But they're they're bucketed into four different areas of your life, and so it's uh, learn, earn, assistance, persistence, L E A P. So. There's all these exercises about how you fo- how you learn about what you're best at and how you can focus in on what you're best at. Then there's all these exercises on making sure that you're earning money at what you're best at and moving up that line of money we spoke of earlier. Then there's all these exercises on how do you build a network of people around you to assist you in the things that you're not so good at or drive new work to you. And then finally and inevitably, there's persistence where even if you have learned, earned and you know p- built a network around you of people to assist you, you still have to persist. So learn, earn, assistance, persistence is kind of a simple mnemonic that, you know, could become one of those things where you think about it every single day and you try to move one step closer down the line.
0: Well, and what I love about it, and we spoke about this earlier too, is this is what I want to teach my girls. This is what I want to teach my kids in terms of here's the success formula for life. You don't have to be superb at everything. Forget being well-rounded. Be absolutely exceptional at a few things that create value for others that they're willing to pay for. Get assistance with all those other things, which my 10-year-old is already really good at. <laughs> she's, she's been delegating since she was three, mostly to us, but there you go. <laughs> and then and then, do not let failure stop you. Persist. I mean, I think I've read a great book um, on kids, which is how how children succeed, It's and a lot of it is grit. It is absolutely that willingness to just – you know, tough it out and, per- and just not give up on yourself yeah. or anyone else. And sometimes you need at least one other person in your life. And these are, you know, inner city kids with very few opportunities. You need someone else to believe in you until you can believe in yourself. But just that absolute unwillingness to give up, which I think is such a powerful life force, to be honest. So I I think this is a formula for... Growing team members, growing children, growing ourselves—it's—it's it's pretty awesome.
1: You know, it's funny that you mentioned that book, How Children Succeed. It's the first book I read after I stopped re- uh, writing this book. Really? And I have a child too, and I think about these same things. And I, you know, I also I feel um, uh, I feel overly sensitive. I'm overly aware of the hypocrisy of parents, myself included, of the way we teach our kids, but the way we act ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, that book is—I re- think the future in so many ways. In terms of you can teach people, how to have better character. That's what he's kind of going down the line of. And it can be taught like other things are taught. I mean, you can study it. It's best practices. It's exercises. And the current, what they call the factory model of the classroom, Mm -hmm. you know, 30 students, one teacher, the teacher spews out the same stuff to all 30, and the one kid who gets it the most is the best, and the one kid who gets it the least is the worst, and everyone else fills in the curve, is like a disaster Mm -hmm. for teaching most things, but it's certainly a disaster for teaching failure and character because they're basically rewarding the kid who comprehends it the best and they're punishing the kid who comprehends it the least and everyone and, and all the other kids who are having trouble and you end up with a bunch of kids who feel like failures and there's no mechanism in schools to kind of reverse that and to turn that into opportunity. Yeah. So I think that's uh, – maybe the future is um, – because a lot of this – a lot of what Business Brilliant about is about is about recognizing the – premise by which we were raised and told here's how you're supposed to operate in the working world and how wrong in fact it seems to be and how the the right way to do it is right in front of us but most of us have trouble capturing it because we're so used to doing it the way we do it so we can imagine a world where kids are taught entrepreneurial qualities character grit in school not as a byproduct maybe because little billy seems to be like you know bent that way but actually taught as an actual measurable Discipline.
0: Well, I love it. And you've really laid out a roadmap for that. I hope. Good. So two last questions. One is, what is your favorite chapter or what is the aspect that really kind of impacted you the most?
1: I think it's the failure chapter, the nothing succeeds like failure, because as an author, this book is in a category of, well, it's not exactly this category, but it would be called success. You know, people who want to read out, be more successful. And there's a lot of people who have a hard time with the idea that you can learn or read how to be more successful because it sounds like a late-night infomercial right from the jump. And, you know, in a sense, this book competes with – and I write about Susie Orman in the book. and But there's that whole ilk of people who I admire, but they're all kind of in that category of, you know, I can teach you to be successful, you know, overnight. And this that's not what this is about. This is about rewiring the way you think about money and success. This is about taking yourself out of your comfort zone. And I thought – it was honest of us to say, and it was really based on the research I got from Russ, but it was honest of us to explore, even if you do everything in this book well, it doesn't mean it's going to work, because mm-hmm. that's the truth. And then to say, you know, the way you respond to that moment pretty much is the most important thing in the whole book. If you respond as a with a sense of failure and you shy away, then it doesn't matter that you were good at the first six things. And if you respond with a sense of inspiration and you move forward, then you have a chance.
0: And you have the statistics that you shared with us about the percentage of of um, high net worth and and you know ultra ultra millionaires who give up. And that percentage, if I recall,
1: well, I think it's very. I don't know the number. It's like so very little. Zero. Zero. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere between zero and zero point zero.
0: There you go. And I thought that was a pretty pro- again profound statistic. It's like okay, there's clearly a message there. So just giving up does not make any sense. It's not the way, direction to go in. So it's something you want to stick with and just use it as a learning process. Don't don't call yourself a failure. Just go okay, good. What am I going to do next time? So I think yeah. that's. I
1: think there's really legitimate criticisms for any kind of evidence based book. For example. What if you are the person who never gives up? You actually do the right things and you try 20 times and it still doesn't work and you're broke and you are never – you're going to be surveyed as a person who – you know, doesn't make money. It's called survivor bias, you know, or there's something else called confirmation bias. I mean, you can look at these numbers and say, oh, it's easy for the rich guy to say he never gives up. He's already got a lot of money. It's easy for the rich guy to say he'll walk away from a negotiation. He's already got money. You can say those things over and over again. I would just like to tell your listeners that we we thought about that. (laughs) We didn't ignore it. And we did the best we could to go back in time. So what we found are that these 50-year-old, you know, mega-millionaires who have everything now – were still negotiating like this when they were 25 and they did not have anything to a pot to do anything with and so it seems like these behaviors are not just there because they have money however when you do have success it is conf- confirming of your behavior so you may do more of it mm-hmm. so there are works in progress too but there was an essence of this stuff from early on
0: well I also think that you know sometimes if you're if you're doing the wrong thing if you're not doing what you're exceptionally good at, Stop. (laughs) Go do something you are. So I think all of the other things first are actually really important when you look at the failure. Don't give up on something you're exceptionally good at that creates value. Just figure out how to do it better. If you are doing something you're failing at because you're terrible at it, that's kind of a clue.
1: Well, here's where the, the interesting part around that is what if you're doing something that you're just pretty good at? So we're all good at something, right? And I think some of us might get off the rails a little bit because we focus on something we're pretty good at.
0: Well, that's what we would call excellent as opposed to unique. Yes. Right,
1: exactly. That's exactly right. And so, you know, it's something called the success paradox. Like you do a lot of – you keep behaving in the way that has led to the success, but are you really refining it and improving it and improving its impact? So the lifestyle is to say – I think I'm good at these five or six things, but I really want to figure out which one I am uniquely good at. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take a lot of failure to figure that out.
0: And that's also a very small number of activity that's very few. Is One or fact? two, one or two, which I think is another really important information. I, I love how you put a fine point on, to my mind, our concepts like the value of free days, which we haven't talked about, but it is definitely outlined in the book and unique ability and failure. I love how you've got real specific examples about those. Uh, last thing I want to wrap up with is how have you utilized the principles? What have you done to, you know? Because obviously, if it's something you want to learn about, you, I, I, can't see how you could possibly write this book and not have shifted your own thinking because right. it's shifted mine already just from reading it. So, what's what's true for you in your life right now? What are you doing?
1: Well, I've had an entrepreneurial life to be honest, but I, but I, I have also fallen easily into things that were player mode. So, along my life, I've been part of a lot of startups and um some of them you know some of them succeeded many more often failed um and for the one or two that succeeded I was well compensated for because I did have a piece of the action but in between all those things I would often just take contracts <laughs> someone who would pay me to do something for them and so that's certainly a a life I have had and then the last thing I was doing before I'm doing what I'm doing now which I'll talk about was I was basically a highly paid player meaning I was a speaker a popular speaker and you know you get asked to go places and they nice places and they pay you to go so it just doesn't take a lot of thinking in your business plan to say yes or no to that you do it but you know what when you're done when you come back home you've got nothing going on because you know you've just been running around the country you've been selling your body to show up in places and you don't do anything strategic so i found after the bad, after my last successful book Um, But as the economy turned, I found that I didn't have a business at all. I just had a a set of activities that were making me money. In 2009, just as I started writing this book, I, um, I, I made a deal with Inc. Magazine to start a community for them. And it was a community that would take... What I use what I call middle class millionaires, and they call successful entrepreneurs of growing companies um and create an environment with them, a physical community. you know that we come together once a month, we have a speaker, we network, we help each other, uh not unlike coach type work. And it's a business that I own now. So I'm an owner and with all the things that go along with that. <laughs> and, um, I have great partners in Inc. magazine and, and it's, it's actually, I'm kind of like a small partner. I mean, I have a small company on a much bigger brand. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. I mean, I've covered my backside of it because I have this pre-established brand I'm working with, but. Still, you know, making payroll like everyone else, making sure the books are straight like everyone else. My business today is not a go public kind of business. It's a it's a it's a grinded out business. You ask what I've learned. I think I've learned that um, this is a really interesting business I'm in right now, and I'm a genuine entrepreneur now. And I also am very very aware of its flaws, right. as every business model has. Uh-huh. And so now I ask myself, you know, do I give up or do I persevere and kind of ring out? The problems and turn them into something like solutions or opportunities. And, you know, so far that's the way I'm going. I'm going to keep working on the model. But um, I definitely have learned about business and not just business like as an MBA business, but business in terms of how it really operates. And I think uh, a lot of people know this stuff innately that, they're, that are in business, but I think even they can know it a lot more and think about it in a more articulated way as opposed to just feeling it in their stomach. So for me, gosh, I mean – I'm just a really well-educated person at this point. <laughs> I have a business. I'm learning how to run the business. I'm researching books on how to do these things. And I, my customers are successful business people. So I'm just surrounded by the right answers.
0: So you put yourself in an environment where you're going to learn from people what you don't know. So you're still doing what you did with the book, which Absolutely. is great, and really applying it. So how important is it for people to have a community around around you to make those shifts? Because I know for me that's one of the things I so much appreciate about coming into my coach workshops is who I get to talk to and what happens to my thinking. So what happened, you know, I think that's a big part of what you created too with Business Owners Council.
1: So here's how we can all relate to this. I mean, sometimes you go to the gym and... You know, you find your 30 minutes to work out and you you might say, well, that was fun. I feel good right now. I want – but these guys who are the personal trainers, like they they live this life and they probably are like totally devoted to it because it's their work, it's their life, it's their hobby and they look great. And I wonder what my life would be like if I was just totally embedded in this world. I, I probably could get in great shape and live well and eat healthy if it was my profession and my personal passion. We don't have that in our lives very much around our own whatever our businesses are. But the notion of being an entrepreneur—I mean, you spend a lot of time making the widget, putting out the fires, solving the problems—and you don't spend a lot of time just being like a fully, you know, exposed entrepreneur with other entrepreneurs talking about entrepreneur stuff. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I have it in spades. I mean, I have so much of it; it's coming out of my ears, and I love it. I love every minute of it. I'm around entrepreneurs. I write about entrepreneurs. I talk to entrepreneurs. I research them everywhere. Mm-hmm. But still in all, if you take my life, I'm the personal trainer example uh, in entrepreneurship. I would say most people have like nothing, like 1%. They have what most people have at the gym. They maybe stop in for 30 minutes once a week and you never get anywhere. And it's kind of disappointing. So definitely have to have a lot more than you have in your life in terms of developing yourself, developing your skills, working with other people who are headed down a similar path as you, checking in with them. And uh, probably most people are never going to have as much as I have. But, you know, I don't know what the right amount is, but a ton more, a ton, ton, ton more than you probably currently have.
0: And that community and that conversation will help you really put into practice the, the LEAP principle.
1: I would say you cannot if you spend time with successful people you you can't not do it imagine hanging out at the gym as a personal trainer and letting yourself get fat and eating Twinkies and you know like everyone around you would look at you like you're crazy you couldn't do it even
0: right (laughs) so that's really the reinforcement the the positive peer pressure to help you do it right that's awesome so Lewis just thank you so much for your time this has been a very great in-depth conversation I really appreciate kind of uncovering what's even more in the book and if you have not grabbed the book do so it is an incredible entrepreneurial education education, Lewis has tapped into amazing experiences and summarized them in an extremely readable way. I love all the stories in your book. Great. And it's got research behind it. For so those of you that are fact finders or need to justify what you're doing to fact finders, it will give you a ton of ammunition. And I found as much as I'm around entrepreneurs like you are, because I'm blessed to have that, I learned a lot. So I would be, first of all, it will validate what you're already doing right, is what I tell people. And it will push you. It's a good kick of the pants in some areas to do things a lot better and to know what you're doing. So as you said, sometimes people have an instinctual understanding of it. But the ability to put language to it, that's what we find a coach, is incredibly powerful because then you can describe it to yourself and others. So I think this book is a huge leveraging tool. It's a multiplier in our language. So I can't thank you enough for writing it and then also sharing yourself in person about this too.
1: Thanks, Shannon. I I think uh, the Strategic Coach community – what you guys do here is, you know, it's highly, highly, highly impactful to a lot of people. And in fact, if we, what we say about social networks is true, you're not just impacting the people you touch directly. There's probably hundreds. And if you think about the number of employees that are impacted, it's a huge Thousands and thousands of people are impacted positively.
0: Thank you. That's our mission. <laughs> All right. Thanks everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, if you have any questions, how can they get a hold of you or how can they connect with more of your information, Lewis?
1: On the Inc. website, it's bizbrilliant.inc.com. That's where I post my blog postings. And on Twitter it's at bizbrilliant.com. Oh, sorry. At BizBrilliant. Yes. You can tell I'm learning how to do this stuff. <laughs> at BizBrilliant. And
0: biz, B-I-Z or B I Z, yes. depending on what country your country you're in. Uh, brilliant. So B I z b r i l i n t Great. Perfect. So people can connect with you there. They can comment and all the rest of it. So if you want to keep being even more business brilliant than you are now, tap
1: into Lewis's wisdom. Thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of your day.